What up, family? This is a sermon from the downtown congregation of Park Church. May it bless your soul as you dig deeper into God's Word. More resources and info are online at parkchurch.org. If you want to start to take your seats again... All right. Good morning, Park Church. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 12. Again, that's 1 Peter, t- na- mm-mm, 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 12. So, just to remind you guys, you do have lines. So, keep up. At the end, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and you will say, thanks be to God. You got it. We're totally good to go. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. There we go. Good morning. Uh, it's good to see you all. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here. I get to serve with Matt and Miguel and so many other men and women who serve so faithfully. And so it's really good to meet you all. Um, I've preached at Grace City before. And so I've been here uh, with uh, the church family here. But it's the first time I've preached since the merger. And so it's pretty exciting just to see a lot of familiar faces, but also some new friends and then also new folks that I met today. And so uh, whether you've been a part of Grace City Church for a long time uh, or you've been a part of Park Church for a long time and have come together, I want to say welcome to you. But also uh, for those that are brand new uh, to this community, we're grateful that you're here. We're going to be a community that's worshiping Jesus together, uh, showing love and kindness towards one another, growing together. Uh, we're a community of broken people that are learning about the beautiful grace of God towards us, his mercy towards us, his faithfulness. And that's changing us little by little, uh, to be people that I think hopefully reflect his love more in the city. And so uh, we are excited to get into uh, this passage. We've been walking through this series called, Who Are We? And uh, who are we as a church? Uh, Who are we as a people? What does it mean to be God's people in this world? And what does that mean for our mission in the city? Um, But today in particular is Palm Sunday. And so Palm Sunday is a Sunday in the church calendar where we actually remember Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, embracing his identity as the Messiah or the king that the people of Israel have been waiting for for a long time. And so there's this really interesting scene where Jesus is kind of, for the first time in his ministry, really owning the fact that, yes, indeed, I am the king. I'm the king you've been waiting for. I'm the king that this nation has been longing for. I'm the king that's come to set the world right, to make the broken things uh, restored and to bring God's wholeness to the world. The issue as the kind of people began to gather and kind of 
be overwhelmed at the identity of Jesus. They start waving these palm branches as a sign of, it's like waving a flag, you know, at a parade or something like that. They're waving these palm branches as a sign of Jewish identity. And they're crying out with this phrase, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that phrase, Hosanna, we'll sing more about it later, is this kind of combination of these Hebrew words, Hoshia Na, which just means save us, please, save us, please. And so the people of Israel have been for a long time crying out for a king that would come and deliver them. Not just kind of give them a ticket to heaven, but restore everything that had been broken, restore everything that was broken in the world. And so they were embracing that this is the one who's come to save us. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The rest of Holy Week, which you're entering into right now, this is the entry into Holy Week, is Jesus subverting what they expected the king to be like. They had expectations of what a savior would come to do. They expected him to save them from Roman oppression. They expected him to save them from uh, the sort of like uh, tyranny of these empire after empire that would come and, and crush them as a people. Little did they know that the kind of king that he was had actually come to sacrifice his own life, uh, to lay down his life as a servant, to cleanse us of our sin, forgive us of our brokenness, and transform the world, not through a sort of top-down imposition of a new kingdom, but through an inside-out, upside-down transformation of people. And so we are on this sort of continuity. We're in this story where God has been changing people from the inside out through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for 2,000 years. And people have been sharing that good news and then changing little by little in who they are as God continues to transform us by grace. And the kind of beautiful image that we see in God's word is that this kingdom would continue to flood from people group to people group, from city to city, nation to nation, and generation to generation. And that through the preaching of the gospel and the transformation of lives, the kingdom of God would be experienced on earth as it is in heaven. And so we get to taste that on a Sunday where we come together as people, not kind of lifting up the greatness of who we are, but again, looking to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as the hope of the world. And so today, what we're looking at specifically is how that good news of Jesus changes our posture in the world and towards the world. That the people of God, as we're called to follow Jesus, the way we're following Jesus isn't just to kind of come together and worship and sing. It's not just to go to a small group and, and hang out with Christians. It's not just to kind of hunker down as a family. It's actually we're called into this city with a particular mission, with a particular posture, with a particular character that God's intending us to be a certain kind of people. And so that's what we're going to look at today from 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, we need the Holy Spirit's help. And the good news of the gospel is that because of Jesus, God is with us uh, right now. He's here. He's in the room. He sees you. He knows you. He cares about you. And so let's pray and ask God to actually work in us and among us this morning. Um, Jesus, we want to say thank you for your mercy. Uh, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your servant-heartedness and your humility. Thank you for your power. And thanks for your love. Uh, thank you for loving us. Think of the psalmist. It just says, your steadfast love, O Lord, is better than life. Be loved by you as a gift. And so I pray that your love would be demonstrated through your spirit this morning, that the way that a, a father would sit down with a, a child and speak comfort when comfort is needed, speak correction when correction is needed, speak encouragement, speak love, just give a hug. The way a father would show that sort of love to his sons and daughters, I pray that your Holy Spirit would communicate your love, Father, uh, with this community today, and that your love would change us to be people that celebrate and proclaim and rejoice in 
your excellencies in this world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I, uh, several years ago, uh, was introduced to the Hamilton soundtrack. Uh, anybody Hamilton fans? Uh, this year during COVID, one of the, the kind of mini blessings of COVID in the midst of a lot of devastation and pain was they released Hamilton on Disney so you could actually watch it. Because I remember we, we got this, I know it was great, and we, we got the soundtrack in 2017. Somebody had uh, kind of shared it with my family, started playing it, and my kids, at that time, my kids were like, you know, maybe seven, five, and two or something like that. And I remember my little two-year-old running around the house going like, what's your name, man? You know, and uh, it's like, Alexander Hamilton, we get it, we get it. You know, but he'd like, they kind of like quote these songs and my daughter loved the sort of King George America breakup song, you know? And there's this point in the song where King George making fun of Americans would say like, awesome, wow. And my daughter would always say that. We'd say something like, hey, we get to go do this thing. And she'd be like, awesome, wow. And it's like this little five-year-old with this like little attitude that she picked up from the Hamilton soundtrack. And, uh, but my son, my older son just started like, he loved it and just started like memorizing lyrics. And this one uh, moment in this song, it's from, uh, Aaron Burr, the kind of second song in the album. And the, and the kind of scene is Alexander Hamilton is coming from the Caribbean. He had actually, his father wasn't around. Uh, his mother had died and he's kind of forging his own way. He's leaving uh, this island in the Caribbean to come to the continent, to this new world, uh, to kind of get educated and really to make a name for himself. And so he, he comes and he's trying to get into college and he meets in the scene in the, in the song or in the musical, he meets Aaron Burr, who is a little bit uh, older, uh, but roughly a peer. And Aaron Burr had gone to Princeton College and graduated in two years. And, uh, and that for Alexander Hamilton is like, I, he was just very motivated and very driven. So he talked to Aaron Burr, and this is the line in the song. He says, Alexander Hamilton to Aaron Burr, he says, I wanted to do what you did, graduate in two, then join the re- revolution. He, talking about uh, kind of a bursar in the, at Princeton, he looked at me like I was stupid. I'm not stupid. So how'd you do it? How'd you graduate so fast? And then Aaron Burr says this line. He says, it was my parents' dying wish before they passed. And Alexander then says, you're an orphan. Of course, I'm an orphan. God, I wish there were a war so that we could prove that we're worth more than any, anyone bargained for. And, and the sort of like image is he, he kind of identifies how did this guy kind of accomplish so much at such a young age? And he learns that he was a, a person who had lost his parents. And it kind of resonates with him. He's like, something about that was like, oh, that makes sense. Your drivenness makes sense because it's the same reason why I'm driven. I feel this need to prove something. I feel this drive and this motivation because my longing to prove that I'm worth something, that I'm valuable, that I'm, that I'm lovable, that I've accomplished something, the sort of lack of that in his life had actually given him this sense of deficiency that he really felt the need to prove something about who he was. And the reason why I think it's fascinating, even in my own story, just thinking about a broken home and the sort of like motivations for me of accomplishing something, proving something, demonstrating something, comes from a really a broken place within me. And the sort of like angst and anxiety that's created when you're trying to prove something to people uh, can only drive you for so long. And eventually it leads to a real significant feeling of burnout. And there's different personalities in the room. Some of you are really driven uh, to do what's right because it's right. Some of you are driven to really help and serve people. Some of you are driven to accomplish something, improve something. Some of you are just driven by kind of excitement and what's the next best thing. But there are these different motivations that can drive us. But when you kind of look at 
who God's called us to be in the world and what he's called us to do, if you're driven by needing to prove something to somebody, needing to be some future version of yourself, needing to kind of like accomplish something or or show people that you're worthy of love, you will burn out. And so I'm, I'm hesitant when I talk about things that God's called us to, to just jump right into, Here, here's what God's called us to do in the city. Here's how we got to go tell people about Jesus and represent the love of Jesus and love and serve and, and care for the city. Let's go do more and more and more and more, knowing that some of you will be like, yes, let's go. Sign me up. I'm so pumped. I'm so excited. This new church thing downtown, we're excited and we're engaging. Let's go. And some of you are like, I have been doing that for decades and I'm done. I have no kind of energy left for it. I feel kind of burnt out of it. I've been pushing and pushing in these different ways. Some of you have never really even been gra- like grabbed by the love of Christ that would make you even kind of feel the significance of, of sharing and continuing to see the glory of God pushed forward in this city. And so where I want to start as we're thinking about what does it mean to be the people of God? We've been talking for the past few weeks, Matt and Miguel talking about this mission that we exist to make disciples of Jesus. Tell people, learn what it means to follow Jesus, to apprentice after Jesus, to follow the way of Jesus. And we do it for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. Knowing that when we are reconciled to God through the grace of Jesus, we get to experience the love of God. And in the context of that love, we get to learn to reflect him and follow his way of life in the world. That's great. But if we ever lose sight of his love, if we lose sight of his care for you, his affection for you, his delight in you, that you are secure in the love of God right now before you do or don't do anything, whether you leave this place today and kind of are passionate about Jesus or you leave this place today in the tank and just feeling down or you kind of go throughout the week and you stumble and you fall, that God sees you and he knows you and he loves you. It's who he is. It's, it's his character. It's to love you as his child and it is that love that properly continues to change us from the inside out to be a people that want to live for him and for his glory in the world. And so what I want to do today is focus in on this specific aspect of how is it that the mercy of God and the grace of God and the love of God propels us outward into the city? And what does that affect about the way we think about our work and the way you think about your neighborhood and the way you think about the institutions and the structures? How does it, how does it change that? But we have to do all of, it, all of it in the context of who God has called us to be and his love for us, which is why I love this passage in 1 Peter. Um, 1 Peter is written to a group of people that are really wrestling with what it means to be the people of God in a world that is not pumped about the Christian faith. He's writing to a, a group of people in a region called Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. But it's people that weren't experiencing like physical suffering. They weren't being like physically persecuted at this point in the sort of like uh, movement of the first century. Uh, that was going to come soon. But at this point, there's just this general disdain for Christianity uh, in societies, and that's from the Romans. It's from people in these different regions, and it's from the Jewish people that the sort of following Jesus led to some real sense of kind of uh, being ostracized by your family, being demeaned in the workplace, being criticized, being looked down upon by broader cultural um, kind of society. And it's interesting to me to see Peter continue to root, root this people and who God says that they are, who God says that they are, and who he's called them to be in the world. And so what I want to do Today is just ask two questions from this passage. Uh, and it's the first one is this, who in the world are you? And the in the world, you know, I don't just mean it in the sort of idiomatic way. Who in the world are you? But who 
in the world are you? Like, what's your identity in the midst of this world? And the second question is, why are you in the world? So who in the world are you? And why are you in the world? And we're gonna look at it from 1 Peter. If you close your Bible, I'd encourage you to keep it open. Uh, it's a pretty incredible passage. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible. Um, and chapter one is so beautiful. I hate, I hate jumping into the middle of any uh, kind of New Testament epistle or story because context matters so much to even give a sense of it. So let me give a, a quick little uh, overview of what, of what Peter's doing here. Uh, remember who Peter is. He was just a fisherman. Uh, we've been preaching through the Gospel of Matthew in the Highlands for the past few years. And, uh, and, and Peter's just this guy who had been called by Jesus. He was a fisherman, kind of stumbling his way through life. And he spent three years uh, learning about Jesus and who he was and what he was like. And then on that, Palm, on that first Palm Sunday, he was there kind of like watching Jesus embrace his messianic identity. And he's there waving the palm branches and he's gathering the donkey. And he's like, this is it. This is the moment. And then he watched the one that he had kind of come to expect would, would change the world through his power. He watched him be betrayed by a friend. He watched him be falsely accused. He wa- watched him be wrongfully condemned. He watched him as he was stripped, whipped, and beaten. He kind of cowered away when people were like, are you with that guy? He's like, I don't know that guy. I don't know that guy. And, and then Jesus has kind of marched the next day up a hill, and he's crucified on a tree, and he dies. Peter sees him buried and says, I'm going back to fishing. I'm going back to fishing. Because all his hopes were just dashed, totally dashed. His expectations that Jesus was going to change the world were just dashed. And then on that Sunday that we get to celebrate a week from today, he was there when he's seeing this incredibly like, astounding reality of this empty tomb. And then he later has this encounter with the risen Jesus. And from that point forward, everything changed for Peter. Peter starts spreading this news, the good news that Jesus is the son of God. He died for our sin. He rose again on the third day and he's changing the world. He's changing the world and starts spreading this news. And so Christians start forming and Peter's then filled up with the Holy Spirit. He's in Jerusalem. He's preaching the good news and the the news begins to spread from nation to nation and, and kind of people group to people group. And a couple decades pass, Peter's a little bit older. He's walked through a lot of difficulty, but he's also seen God do incredible things. And he's hearing about these kind of like struggling, beleaguered Christians in Asia Minor that are wrestling to stay faithful to Christ in the face of a society that was oppositional, that was antagonistic to their faith. And so he writes them a letter and that's called First Peter. And he's writing them a letter to say to them, hey, hey, God has called you to something beautiful and the world is against you and there's suffering and there are going to be challenges, but who God's called you to be and what he's called you to do is beautiful. And so he begins the letter with this incredible, like, um, kind of just blessing over them and over God. He says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. He's given us new life. He's made us a new kind of people. He's given us a living hope. Even in the face of all of the opposition in society, he's given us this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he's called us this inheritance. And the inheritance is a kingdom that God is building as a kingdom and, and he's given us the privilege of being a part of it. He said, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And it's being guarded through faith for this future salvation. He says, while it feels like everybody's against you, everything's hard, you're getting beat down, and you feel like so beleaguered, so worn down, God is protecting you. And he's called you into this imperishable, indestructible, unfading kingdom, this unshakable kingdom. And we have seen shakable things this year. Over the past 12 months, so much in the world has been shaken. 
There's so much difficulty even in being faithful to Jesus where there's been so many misrepresentations of Jesus in society and around. You feel like, I don't even feel, feels like uncomfortable, like even claiming the name of Jesus when you got like Jesus saves signs kind of like as a part of an insurrection in the Capitol. You've got like, like it's hard to even like, what does it mean to be faithful to Jesus? And what Peter's saying is, hey, it is challenging, but you have an unshakable kingdom. Your children of a God whose love is unshakable to you. And that gives you hope. And says, even though now, if necessary, for a little while, you're going to go through some hard things. But those hard things are going to change you. They're going to shape you. They're going to refine you the way a fire can refine gold. And it's going to strengthen the, the beauty and the magnificence of your faith. And it's going to make you shine in the world as people who actually reflect the glory of God. And then in chapter 2, he picks up this whole kind of theme of the people of God both in the first century AD and also here for us in the 21st century as a, as a part of a kind of ongoing story of God's mission to bring restoration into the world. And so he starts picking up on all these Old Testament themes, like you're a temple. He calls us the temple. He says like, it's like a, a, God's building a new kind of temple and Jesus is the cornerstone and he's taken all of you and you're like little breathing, living Stones that are being kind of like stacked together into this, this new kind of a, a temple. And what's he saying there? He's saying actually, like one, there's this interconnectedness through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But also we as a people are the ones in whom God's very presence dwells. That's what a temple was. It's the dwelling place of God. And saying in the midst of this society where there's all these incredibly challenging things, God is with you. God is with you. But the temple is also a place where people would come to meet with God and saying, God's not just with you in this sort of like me and Jesus time. He's actually with us to radiate the presence of God to the world around us. That if people want to know God, they should be able to come into your small group or they should be able to hop into your house and see his love and experience his hospitality and interact with his kindness and his mercy and his servant heartedness through his spirit filled people. This is who he's called us to be. So when somebody comes in these doors, what they ought to experience as we surrender to the Spirit imperfectly is love and kindness and humility and warmth and affection and servant-heartedness as we live here together. But then as we scatter back into the city, we continue to be those who embody the sort of presence of God in the world, that we're a new kind of temple, and it's not in a building, beautiful building. This isn't the temple of God. The building in the highlands, older building, right? Not the temple of God. We are the temple of God. And we're here together. We get to kind of get warm together and like celebrate the love of Christ together, praise Jesus together, and go back in the city and mediate and radiate his presence all around this place. Because God is in us. And he's with us and he loves us. And he loves the world. And he's called us to be a part of it. And so in that kind of mindset, that Peter then kind of goes in chapter 2, verse 9, and gives us litany of these kind of identifiers. If we're asking who in the world are you? Here's what Peter says, chapter two, verse nine. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession. Four powerful, powerful truths, all of them coming from Old Testament realities. So the first one, this idea of you are a chosen race. It's saying, hey, humanity came into this world to actually bear the image of God, to show kind of the glory of God, the character of God, the love of God, the sort of creativity of God. Human beings were designed in your inherent kind of like ontology, in your inherent being, you were designed to show something of God's love to the world, something of his character to the world, in the way we relate to each other and the way we work and and the way we do the things we do as a society. And when human beings turn from the reign of God, there's like this brokenness. 
And so the idea is like in Adam, we kind of all, instead of representing God accurately, we misrepresent his glory in different ways. You're still an image bearer. Every human being still worthy of dignity and value, worthy of honor and care, but we're misrepresenting his character. And when Jesus comes into the world to actually forgive us of our sins and to reconcile us to God, he's not just giving us a ticket to heaven. He's actually creating a whole new humanity. It's like a whole new creation. And it's this new race. It's a new race. It's a new humanity comprised of people from every tongue, every ethnicity, every culture, from every nation, every tribe, every people group. He's pulling together this new humanity, calling people, you, be my child. You, be my daughter. Be my son. Come into my family. And he's like this new humanity of people that are living as we are designed to live in relationship with God, abiding in his love, secure, free, forgiven, loved. And in that place able to, again, represent who God's called us to represent, to actually bear God's image in the world. You are a chosen race. You are, secondly, a holy nation or royal priesthood. The royal priesthood, this comes from Exodus chapter 19, where God has called his people out of slavery in Egypt. He's redeemed them through the blood of the lamb and through the waters of the Red Sea. And he's brought them up to this mountain and he's about to teach them, here's what life in my kingdom is going to look like. And that's what the law is. It's instructions for the people of God to understand what life in the kingdom is like. And so as he does that in Exodus chapter 19, verse five and six, he gives these identifiers. All three of these next phrases come straight from Exodus 19, five and six. This idea of a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And the idea of a priesthood, um, in the Old Testament, a priest would mediate the presence of God. And so they would actually go before God on behalf of the people, offering sacrifices on behalf of the people, but they would also mediate the presence of God to the people. And so in the sort of Christian tradition that we're a part of, we believe in this thing called the priesthood of believers, which means I'm a priest and you're a priest. We are, right? So I have to answer that question when you're on a plane and people are like, oh, what do you, you know, we've had a nice casual conversation. They're like, what do you do for a living? I'm like, what do you do for a living? You know, and they're like, I'm a pastor. And it's like almost always shuts the conversation down. Like they're like, oh gosh, you know, oh geez, one of you. Except for this year, more neighbors have like in the past, if I was going on a walk through my neighborhood, people, and I told people I was a pastor, it'd be like, okay, never mind. But this year, after a hard year, people are like, hey, you're a pastor, right? It's, it's fascinating. <laughs> It's fascinating because people have questions. Things have been shaken. People are actually more open. But guess what? You're also a priest. We're a kind of, there's a priesthood of believers that we are a people called to mediate the presence of God to the world and to represent the world before God. In other words, you get to go out into the world to show God's love and kindness to your neighbors and in your workplaces and in the streets and in the city as we serve and love and care for. But we also get to bring the burdens of this city, the burdens of your neighbors, the burdens of your coworkers before God, to intercede for them, to pray for them, to ask God to move among them. And he said, this is who you are in the world. Who in the world are you? You're a, you're a holy nation or you're a, you're a royal priesthood. The third thing he says, a, a holy nation. Um, the word holy gets a weird rap because it, you know, we, we have phrases like holier than thou, uh, which like is inherently a pejorative phrase, right? It's saying like, if you think you're holier than other, other people, it's like a way of like, oh, you know, you're uppity or whatever. Uh, the, the word holy just means set apart for a unique purpose. He's saying you've been called as a people to be set apart in the world. God's holy nation, like a, a new nation in the midst of all of the nations that's set apart to be ambassadors of a different kind of kingdom, a different kind of king, a different way of life, a different culture. And so we are scattered all throughout 
Denver, or you're scattered around the nations, you're scattered around in other continents, and all of the people of God are a part of this new nation scattered throughout all the nations of the earth to bear the image of God, to actually be ambassadors for Jesus in the world. And the last thing he says here is a people for his own possession. And I think this is a stunning phrase. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, God says, the whole world is mine. Everything is mine. But you're called to be a people for my own possession. The word there, the Hebrew word is segula. Can you say segula? Segula. Sounds beautiful, doesn't it? Not so much. Uh, It means like treasured possession. Like a, a delighted end. So you've got all your possessions, but then you've got your one possession. It's right, right? You've got all your kids, but then you've got your favorite kid, right? No, I'm kidding. Uh, it's not healthy. It create psychological problems for your children if you say it out loud. But you have one. You have one. It might change. Uh, no, it's like you're, uh, it's your, your fa- you've got your stuff, but then you have this like, thing you value. It's just like a treasure to you. And, and you delight in it. And you enjoy it. And that's what God says. The whole world's mine, but you are my segula. You're my, you're my like delighted possession. I have so much affection for you and enjoyment of you. And that's this like beautiful theme all throughout the Bible that God delights in his children. He created you. He made you. He designed you, your personality and your wiring and your biology, everything. He made it. He delights in it. He said it's really good. He like just loves who he made you to be. And then we wandered from him, and we rebelled against him, and it's a big deal. I'm not making light of it. And he laid down his life. Jesus, the Son of God, laid down his life as an expression of the Father's ongoing love for us in the face of our wandering, in the face of our rebellion, in the face of our kind of jack wagon, kind of meandering souls that kind of do our own thing in the world and continue to run from him again and again. He's like, I still delight in you. I still love you. How do we know? Well, God loved the world in this way. He sent his own Son into the world to redeem us, to save us, wash us, and forgive us. He loves you. That's incredible that you today go home. You might be in a really dark space. A lot of people that are. There's a lot of people after a lot of challenges over the past year, both kind of globally, but also probably in your own life, are in a dark space. Right where you are, feeling like you've been crushing it, feel like you've been in the tank, feel like you're excited about Jesus, feel like you're losing your faith. He delights in you. He sings over you. He loves you. And that's the context. That's who you are. You're the beloved of God. You are this this new race. You are this priest in the world, a, a royal priesthood. You are this holy nation. And God's called you to be that. So it might feel like the world's against you. It might feel like nobody in your workplace gives a rip about your faith, or they condescend, or they joke, or they demean. And God says, that's not who I say you are. I love you. You're my treasured people. And I've called you to be this in the world for this purpose. And this is the purpose in verse 9 or verse 10. In order that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. This is the why are you in the world. In order that. In order that. He's called you. He's kept you. He's secured you. He loves you. In order that you would tell the world, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and brought you into his marvelous, marvelous light. And he uses this theme from the book of Hosea saying, you, you are not my people, but I've now made you my people. I'm constituting this new group of people that are entirely founded on my mercy and on my love and on my grace, that we don't live in the world to be like, look, I'm a good human. You should be like me. I'm just like, I'm an average, ordinary human that's a child of an extraordinary God. 
I'm a person who fails and makes mistakes. I have insecurities and fears. I have shame I carry and darkness that I walk with. I struggle with depression and anxiety in all these different ways. I constantly find myself even leading and preaching from mixed motives. And I want people to like me. And that comes from all these like deep places of insecurity. And like, that's me, ordinary guy with ordinary stuff, beloved by God. Beloved by God. He loves me. And I wander from him and I lose heart and I talk about things that, and, and from his word that I'm like, man, I'm feeling this. This whole week I'm looking at this passage like, God, I, how do I talk about this? And he's like, well, you're not talking about how great you are. You're talking about my mercy. My mercy. We've received mercy. And so we get to share with people about his mercy. We get to share about him, about, about his justice. We get to share about his love and his kindness and his servant heartedness. What about Jesus is good news for you? I mean that as a question. What's good news for you? Is it about he's going to bring justice in the world? He's gracious and forgiving. He's faithful. He's there. He's given me hope in the darkest of places. He's brought healing into my life in so many ways. He's given me wisdom. He's continued to stay faithful to me in the face of all this brokenness. He's been near to me when it felt like everybody deserted me. What, what about Jesus is good news for you? These are the excellencies of Christ. And there's so many. You don't have to tell me to kind of like uh, brag on Denver. I love Denver. I love Denver. When I moved to Denver, I'm like, I started telling everybody, like, Denver's amazing. I was proclaiming all the excellencies of Denver. You can go to the mountains. I was in Clear Creek Canyon yesterday with my kids. It's beautiful, snowy, gorgeous, sunny, all at the same time. You can come to the city. You can go to restaurants and microbreweries. You can eat great food. There's great parks and trails. It's awesome. I can proclaim the excellencies of Denver. When I came here, I started asking, like, everybody should move to Denver. Like, I'm kind of like just like the evangelist for all things that I love. And so I'm like, everybody should come to Denver. Everybody should come into Denver. And then after like two years, I'm like, Okay, that's enough. Like, no more people need to come to Denver. You know, like, uh, we've got plenty of people. Uh, nobody else needs to come here, especially if they're from Texas. Um, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Freudian slip. Uh, no, no uh, Texans are wonderful. You have so many of them in our church. You're loved. You're loved by God of the universe. He loves you. He loves you. And we love you. We're glad you're here. Uh, right, you brag about the things you love naturally. You just do. You naturally do. You rejoice and proclaim the excellencies of the things that make your heart happy, that satisfy you, that you delight in. And who God's called us to be is a people that are proclaiming the excellencies of a God who loves you and is merciful to you, who called you out of darkness and brought you into his marvelous light. And so we get to tell people about Jesus. We don't have to like come up with a special little clever technique. It's like just build friendship and love people. Get to know your neighbors, your real ones. Why? Because they're created in the image of God and they're worthy of love. And the spirit of God's in you and wants you to be his royal priesthood, showing his love to your next door neighbor, your actual literal next door neighbor and your coworker and the people in the city. And as you walk through the streets and engage in your hobbies and your recreation to get to know people and just love them, love them, love them, build friendship with them. Not as an agenda, I remember somebody was getting to know me. I, I met somebody at a park and our kids were playing together and they were like so warm and so kind. I'm like, oh man, you're so warm and kind. I'm like, you're either a Christian or a part of a multi-level marketing scheme. And, uh, and sure enough, it was like, and like, hey, I want to talk to you about some ways that you can make some passive income. I'm like, Ugh. you know, um, God. Uh, so, and, and, but I remember like, it's like, okay, if we're all agenda-y, like, I want to, I wanna like, do this in order to get you to do something else versus we just love people because God's spirit is in us and he loves people. 
So love them. But also talk to them about Jesus. Talk to them about how Jesus is meeting you and helping you in your marriage and hardship and difficulties. Tell people about the way Jesus is meeting you. And as they walk through hard things, this is what Peter's going to say later, they might at some point ask you to give an explanation for the hope that you have. Where did that hope come from? Where did that, how did that thing happen when your marriage was going through that hard thing? How did you find security and, and strength there? When you lost that child or went through that hard thing physically or when you're going through this thing, how do you have security and hope? And then you get to share with people and give them an explanation, a reason for the hope that you have. We get to proclaim Christ to the world. We get to proclaim him. But we also get to reflect Christ in the world. And that's where he goes Verse 11, beloved, I urge you as exiles, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. And keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. A, a better translation would even be beautiful. Keep your living among the non Christians beautiful. Keep living beautifully, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds, your good work, and glorify God on the day of visitation. Here's what Peter's saying is you're in the world on purpose. You're not supposed to create some little Christian ghetto with your Christian friends and kind of stay secluded from the rest of the world. You're called to live in the world as sojourners and exiles. In other words, like the kind of systems and structures of this world aren't eternal. There is a shakeability to the world and God will continue to bring kind of shaking experiences to the world. And it is his kingdom that is unshakable. And we live for the unshakable kingdom in the midst of a shakable society. And so we continue to engage with the good things God's called us to do. We, we get to love our neighbors. We get to kind of continue to rest with healthy rhythms of rest. We get to work with a healthy intentionality in our work. You to go to your workplace and serve your clients and love your coworkers and do the good work God's called you to do in the service industry or in education or in law or in finance or in business or whatever God's called you to do in healthcare. And you get to go into the world and do good in the world. Because God's designed you to be that kind of a person, to actually do good work for the common good and for human flourishing. And you get to do it with kindness and love. And you're going to make mistakes. And you can ask for forgiveness. And you can admit your wrongs. And you can own your mistakes. And you can fight for justice. And you can fight for equity in your workplace or in society. And you can do this good stuff. And so when people are like, Christians are so bigoted because they believe there's only one way to God. But dang, they're some of the most incredible people I've ever met. And God's glorified. And actually, he begins to awaken in other people. Maybe there is something there. Maybe there's something there. And they lean in. And we get to kind of be the temple of God. People are coming to say, what is it about this place? I'm drawn into the life of this place. And we say, hey, the life that's here is not ours. The life that we have is because there was a lamb who died for us. The son of God, Jesus, he laid down his life to wash me, cleanse me, forgive me, to, to kind of begin to change me from the inside out. And you can know him too. And we get to be that kind of a people that are spreading the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ into this world so that God would get glory and people would get joy. That's who we're called to be in the world. And let's pray. Um, Jesus, we are so grateful for your steadfast love and your mercy and your grace and your kindness and for calling us out of darkness. We were a people who had run from you. And you pursued us and you gave us mercy and you called us your people. You called us to be this, this royal priesthood. You called us to be a holy nation. You called us to be a, your chosen race. You called us to be your delighted possession. Not to protect ourselves or withdraw from the world, but to go into the world as light in the midst of the darkness, as those who 
reflect your, your character in the midst of the world that's desperate for you. And so would you help us? Would you help us? Uh, there are so many men and women throughout generations and even all around the city today uh, and children that are following you. And so help us to do our part, to be faithful in response to your love, not to earn your love, not to secure ourselves in your presence, but because of your love, to be people who continue to proclaim the excellencies of Christ and to reflect the character of Christ in the world that you've called us to be in. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. Find us with at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.